Our scripture reading today is Proverbs chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. And I will read from the English Standard Version. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Please make us hungry for this heavenly food. May it nourish us today in ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Proverbs chapter 31, starting at verse one. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is the word of the Lord. Can you hear me? There we go. All right. Good morning. It's always good to get advice from mom, right? Mom, mom preaches straight. So in this sermon series, we have sought out God's wisdom on the justice issue of racial inequality. We've seen that the issue is real, that we are called to respond in some way. We've been shown that this isn't a new issue for the church, and that a wise response can actually be a boon for the church's mission. We've seen that God calls us to acknowledge our own part in the equation. This morning, we look at another dimension of how to respond, and we'll see that it's God's intention for us to use our gifts of power and privilege in service to others, to those with legitimate justice needs. Now, I think it's important to situate myself in relationship to this topic, if for no other reason than to acknowledge my need for God's voice. Like many in this congregation, my skin is a sandy pinkish color. I am white. I grew up in a home and in a school where there was an unspoken rule of, social, of racial silence, especially in polite company but it was a selective silence. There were times I remember hearing the opinions of those around me being vocalized, these cultural moments like the O.J. Simpson trials around English versus Spanish as, as the American language, around 9-11, around border control, around Obama's first presidential campaign, campaign, around Black Lives Matter. Sometimes these opinions were displayed over social media sometimes responding to feeds that I myself avoid like the plague. It's funny what lessons silence teaches. Perhaps that there's something at stake in the discussion. Perhaps that talking about it can only bring about bad things. 
like a loss of face. Is there a hissing noise you guys can hear? No, okay. Like a loss of friends, like a loss of the peaceful, quiet shire where everyone minds their own business. Perhaps silence reinforces that there's a wisdom in silence, and so silence begets silence. As I look into the, the, the faces uh, in the pews, many are like mine in terms of skin tone. And I wonder about the lessons you learned growing up about race and racial inequality. Now, a survey was done among school-aged children, and three things that they said they believed about race were that everyone's all the same, race doesn't matter, and that hard work equals success. Honestly, if you'd asked me as a child what I thought, I probably would have said something similar. So it's not, not overt racism, but perhaps a view of the world that believes life is like a skill-based game where input equals or, or output, where outcomes are the direct result of how hard you work, kind of like a chess game where everyone has an equal chance to win. At the same time, many of those who are surveyed also believed that black people are poor, that black people are lazy, that black people are stronger than white people, and that black neighborhoods are dangerous. Here you can see children connecting the dots that this culture of silence uh, did not connect for them. If life is a skill-based game and someone or even a group is losing, then it's because they're lazy rather than because of a lack of opportunity or because of some disadvantage. And you can read the racial fear between the lines of, of black individuals being stronger and black communities being more dangerous. These are lessons learned in a culture of selective silence. The last thing I'll say for myself is that my growing up years made entering into this conversa conversation for me real work because not only is silence easier, but for me, the lessons I learned out of silence built up a wall of defensiveness. So I think irrespective of, of race, we've all been affected by the white culture of selective silence. Now the Bible has a lot to say into the topic of injustice. One thing you'll hear from this passage today is a call to open your mouth, which is a command to revolt against silence. Open your mouth. Revolt against silence. In Proverbs 31, 1 to 9, we hear inspired wisdom from King Lemuel's mother. She asks, what are you doing, my son? I love how Maggie read it. What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Our passage opens by asking the question, what are you doing? Or we could say, what are you doing about this? It's a reality check, it's a wake-up call, and it's also confrontational. The third time the question is asked it, asked, it reminds me of the resurrected Christ asking Peter for three times, do you love me? It's a wake-up call. And I think sometimes, or I think that um, certain people are, are better poised to wake us up. Certain people orient us when they ask us that question, what are you doing? And for a king, the queen mother is one such person. I mean, you can see the gentleness, but also the directness. My son, son of my womb, son of my vows. Perhaps there's, perhaps there's no one better to actually connect him to his calling than his mother. We all have people that, that situate us, that reorient us. Perhaps parents or exemplars in the faith. 
They help connect us to our identities as, as image bearers, as kingdom representatives. Sometimes it's the faith of a child that wakes us up. I think about my own faith journey. I think about mentors in college, authors of impactful books. They all helped me, so-called, so, so to say, paddle upstream, go against the current by asking me, what are you doing? And equally, I would say, we have people we can ask that to. What are you doing? This is the heart of small groups, the heart of Christian friendship and fellowship. It's all about noticing and asking each other, what are you doing? Now, sometimes even a, a king needs to be confronted, and that's what you get in verses 3 on. Uh, his mother asks him, do not give your strength, or she tells him, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what's been decreed and pervert the rights of all who are afflicted. She says, first, you have strength, but kings need their strength to rule. Don't squander your strength on women. Notice it's plural there, women, not talking about marriage and family life. Such is the ruin of kings. She effectively tells him that his power is not to be used for self-gratification. Whatever strength is given to you is given to you as a gift. and You need it to live your calling. You need your strength to live your calling. And then she talks about wine. She says, yes, some people drink strong wine. The idea here is drinking that leads to drunkenness. But kings need a sharp mind to rule. You can't abandon your responsibilities with these cheap distractions. You can't avoid what needs to be done. You need your wit and your memory to uphold the rights of the afflicted, to keep the important things of central importance. So this is the first time we hear that language of the afflicted. Literally, the language here is sons of affliction, or sons of pain, or sons of woe. And one Hebrew scholar connects that, that word sons uh, to the verb to build, meaning there's a recognition that something is built through lineage. It's intergenerational. It's bigger than the sum of the person's choice in that life, choices in that life. It's inherited. It's a whole family thing. And any one person is just a brick in the building. Now, I mentioned it earlier an assumption that most children make of black Americans, that if you work hard, uh, that, that, excuse me, hard work equates with success. And so if somebody isn't successful, well, that means they haven't worked hard. Well, as we've already seen in this series, there are other ways to read those statistics about racial inequality. The better way is that black individuals and communities historically and presently have been deprived of the conditions necessary for flourishing. They start the chess game with a queen and several pawns off the board. And we know that it's easier to take advantage of and create injustice towards the vulnerable of the world to people who do not start the game on the same footing. It's easier to silence those on the margins and deny a fair hearing to those without counsel. Clearly, Lemuel's mother wishes for him to promote righteousness and mercy, especially to those on the margins, especially to the sons of the afflicted. So the next two verses, six and seven, I believe are verses that should be taken ironically. 
Give strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, of course, if you had the choice between free whiskey and restoring justice to your family, what would you choose? No, really, what would you choose? Free whiskey or restoring justice? I think this verse is meant to highlight the inadequacy of such an approach. During the time of slavery in America, slave owners used whiskey as a means of control. According to Frederick Douglass, slave owners would make bets on who, who among the slaves could drink the most, creating scenes of debauchery and excess among their slaves. Maybe they took these verses literally. Maybe they thought they were doing something good. But I think more likely they were providing mindless distraction to limit potential and to limit hope to keep their slaves dependent. The truth is, the Bible does not have many good things to say about strong drink. In Proverbs, the only thing it says about strong drink is that it leads to bitterness and death. I think it's ironic, especially uh, when it's read, bookended by the calls to perform justice. Forgetting one's poverty and misery is only a pale counterfeit for actually receiving justice. And so we get to verse 8. Open your mouths for the mute, for the rights of all the destitute. There's the command, open your mouth. Use your words, speak up. If you see something, say something. Don't stay silent. When you have the opportunity to advocate for the rights of all who need it, all those who need an advocate, take the opportunity. But even more than that, use your mouth to create opportunities. I think of the story of Esther in the Bible. When faced with the possibility of the genocide of the Jewish people, in Persia, Esther used her voice to advocate for those who didn't have the king's ear. What did her uncle Mordecai say to persuade her to speak out? He said, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this, Esther opened her mouth she spoke up for the rights of the Jews, and God used her voice. Open your mouth for the mute. The mute here refers to those who cannot get a fair hearing. Literally, those who have no voice in courts. The last phrase of, of verse 8 is it's the sons of destruction. Again, that, that, that sons of language. Uh, or, or you could translate it, the sons of those appointed to die. Again, I think it's opening our minds to something bigger than an individual's lot and an individual's set of choices. Um, I mean, this verse makes me think of individuals on death row, um, the work of Brian Stevenson. This makes me think of children in black communities born to foster care or to, to one-parent homes. Um, what, what you should see is that words have power regardless of your station in life. And you have opportunities to open your mouth for the mute. Um, yes, it's possible to lead a simple life that chooses selective silence. But if you do this, where is your strength going? Really, where is your strength going? Verse 9, open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Here I'm reminded of the call of Abraham in Genesis 18 to start a new kind of family in the world, set apart, quote, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The idea of righteousness is about doing the things that God calls good. 
It's an ethical standard that leads to right relationships between people, treating people as the image of God and with God-given dignity. And justice, it can be retributive. Sometimes in the Bible, you get what you deserve. That's, that's retributive. But most often in the Bible, it's referring to restorative justice, which is justice that takes the next step, that seeks out vulnerable people that are being taken advantage of and helps them. Restorative justice is about more than charity. It's about taking steps to advocate so that the sons of affliction don't remain the sons of affliction. That means changing social structures to prevent future injustice and cycles of injustice. Repairing the Jericho Road, if you will. Restorative justice has in its view uh, the sons of affliction rather than just one who's been afflicted. And so we're, we're told in this passage, open your mouth, use your words, speak up. Now before I bring this message back to home for us, I think it's important to say that we all fall short of this standard. And not just, not just us, everyone. Some perpetuate injustice directly. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures and aren't motivated to change things. Further, history has shown us that when the oppressed gain power, they become oppressors themselves. This is the story of redeemed Israel who go on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable that God condemned Egypt and Babylon for. We all participate in injustice, actively, passively, intentionally, unintentionally. So what's God's response to this? God's response to injustice is not to hammer on about our shortcomings, but rather is to give us the gift of Jesus. Jesus did righteousness and justice. He fulfilled the call of Abraham. He died on behalf of the guilty. And so God declared Jesus righteous and offers his life to the guilty. Now, we say these words a lot, and it can lose our punch, the, the punch of the words, but justice without Christ amounts to our, de our death. Divine justice without Christ amounts to our death. In Christ, we're offered the rewards of perfect righteousness and justice without earning them. What are, what, and, and, and when you think about it that way, that, that we've been given life although we didn't earn it, what other response can we have except for praise and a life that extends God's love to others? If God declared you righteous by no merit of your own, the only response we can have is to extend that, to seek righteousness and justice for others. So I wonder, what does that mean for you? First, I, wanna, I want you to consider your strength and your resources, those that God's given you. Time, money, emotional and physical ability. Some of us hold positions of power. Others have platforms to speak loudly, but we all have power and voices. But I also want you to consider that God has given you his word, the message of the gospel, a community of faith, the Holy Spirit, and direct access to God. All of these things equip us individually and collectively to speak out against injustice that we're confronted with and to introduce people to God where they will see God's answer for justice. Second, I want you to consider the things you use your strength and resources for as a distraction. Maybe it is women in strong drink. I don't know. I don't know you. Maybe... It's a personal idol of the heart, uh, like being comfortable, 
being successful, being entertained, being smart enough, pretty enough, popular enough. I also think this culture of silence can take a great deal of strength to maintain. There's a lot of distractions that help maintain equilibrium for this silence. One thing I've learned from this series is the importance of using our strength for listening so that we know how to act. For my own life in the trenches of silent complicity, I know God has brought people along my path that were a little more courageous, a little more culturally defiant, a little bit more willing to call me up and out. They've helped me to listen and see and act on people's stories that frankly feel like they're blaming me even though they're not. Some that actually do blame me and some that make me feel uncomfortable. And listen not just during cultural moments where the silence, that, that veil of silence is broken, but whenever there's injustice. Lastly, I want you to consider how you could use your strength and resources for righteousness and justice. Uh, one of the curious things about this text is that it certainly does not limit itself to the church and hardship that's experienced by Christians within the church. It applies to anyone that has a need. It involves making other people's problems your problems. It's radical. It's not convenient. It's not easy. Loving your neighbor as yourself is truly a commitment to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. But in certainly how we're called to live after we believe. God does not just call us to the church on a rescue mission to save us. He is transforming us to fulfill that call that he uh, made to Ab gave to Abraham to do justice, yeah, to do justice, and to, to do righteousness and justice. So as we close, I want you to imagine your next step. Maybe it will be violating the unspoken social contract and break the silence on race. Maybe that's what it's going to be. For some of us, it might involve learning more. And it's good to learn from books, but better to learn from neighbors. And the one thing I'll say about this is that it is not a blessing to learn from somebody if you have no intention to act afterwards. But it is a blessing to listen when you want to act and you want to get involved and you want to use your hands in service. Maybe it's going to involve making conversation with a son or daughter of affliction in full awareness that their problems may become your problems. I also want you to think about your heroes of the faith and hold for a moment the possibility that God is calling you to ask someone else, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing about this? Certainly that God is asking that of all of us today. What are you doing? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this passage. And I thank you that it calls us out of silence. Because as, as comfortable as silence is, it is also suffocating. Um, I pray that we would use our mouths uh, in love, um, and that we would seek out those that are afflicted. And I do pray that we would, we would know that the greatest hope 
for justice is found in the cross. Um, and that, that as a church, we would be as eager, um, yeah, that as eager to, to go about doing social programs as, as, as we would be about proclaiming your gospel um, to the lost. I thank you that we don't deserve your love to us. Um, we don't deserve to be called righteous, but you call us that anyway. We thank you for all of this. In the name of Jesus, amen.